This is the visible hand. My name is Jordi Blanes Vidal. My guest today is Diana Moreira, who is an assistant professor at the University of California, Davis. Today we are going to talk about her paper, Civil Service Exams and Organizational Performance, Evidence from the Pendleton Act, which is joint work with Santiago Perez. And Diana, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Great pleasure to be here. In this paper, you study the consequences of the introduction of competitive entry exams for civil service jobs. Before we go into the detail of the type of reform that introduced exams in practice and that you study, could you discuss from a conceptual perspective whether we should expect that recruiting civil servants through exams makes the bureaucracies more efficient or less efficient? Perfect, yes. In principle, I think the main channel people believe that civil service exams could affect performance is by improving the qualifications of uh, bureaucrats, right? So uh, you impose uh, a mandatory exams, you impose a mandatory exam, and this may improve the qualifications of, of bureaucrats. Now, at the same time, you are reducing discretion, you are limiting the extent that politicians can use additional information in order to select individuals, right? So you are not enabling them to use their network in order to recruit a, best, a better candidate. Uh, and to some extent, this could harm the quality of personnel that you are, uh, you, you are recruiting. Uh, on top of that, by imposing this constraint, you might be changing other elements of the organization, right? The other actors that are making decisions, politicians, the supervisor, and so on, may be changing what they do in response uh, from the fact that now you have this exam. So maybe I don't want to be a politician if I cannot actually nominate the people that work in this bureaucracy. And so there are uh, a variety of other elements that could change at the organization level just because you are imposing uh, this exam. You mentioned just now at the very end, like the unintended consequences, if you want indirect consequences of changing the recruitment process on other parts of the bureaucracy or the organization, but just focusing on what type of uh, civil servant you want to have. So you mentioned that exams might allow you to get candidates with better qualifications. Here, obviously, what you mean is uh, skills as opposed to having a degree of a, one type or another type. Essentially, mm -hmm. civil servants are better able to do their, their job in principle. The other thing that you mentioned is that maybe there are other characteristics of applicants that cannot be captured with an exam. Maybe they are non-cognitive um, that, you know, the recruiters might be able to observe and limiting the discretion is, is a bad thing. The third thing that comes to mind, and this is, this is something that probably you're not going to tackle directly in your paper, but that comes to mind to me in the, in the comparison between recruiting workers for the judiciary in, this, in the Spanish context and in the UK context is whether exams make you get better at attracting individuals that are at the beginning of their careers. So in, in Spain, to be a judge, you take a really, really hard exam. But that exam is so difficult that essentially most candidates spend 10 years studying for the exam, right? This means that the applicants are all very young because that's the only thing that they have done to prepare for the exam. In the UK, there are judicial appointments commissions, so there are no exams. 
they will be prone to maybe corruption or other type of biases and everything, but they tend to recruit barristers and solicitors who have had a previous career, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, you may want to take advantage of the fact that that the candidates have accumulated some skills, some experience in the private sector, even in settings in which you don't have exams necessarily. That, that's an interesting point. Yeah, I think that that's a, a possibility and, and potentially is another outcome of, of exams to change a bit the profile of individuals that are recruited. Now, in terms of our, I think, yeah, two, two reactions to that. We do investigate changes in age, uh, and, and it doesn't seem that that is a, a very different level for the ones that are recruited through exams relative to not recruited uh, through exams, as, as well as other, you know, previous experience prior to entering uh, to the bureaucracy. Uh, these are potential outcomes that... Uh, you know, one might be interested uh, in investigating, and in, uh, in, in our case, we don't find evidence that there are effects on these margins. So we have established the presence of a trade-off there. If you want, you know, with the, with the caveat that I introduced, broadly, like higher exam-based skills or cognitive skills versus the decrease in discretion by the recruiters, you know, in your settings, there'll be politicians, but it need not be. What type of uh, countries or institutional environments would you expect are more likely to benefit from the introduction of exams for the civil service? I think thinking about you know, what the, the margins that the exam can help, which is jobs in which you need uh, qualifications and qualifications that can be measured, right? So qualifications in which you can assess uh, through an exam, and and perhaps the motivation is is less relevant. So in thinking, you know, if you're thinking about tax collector versus a job in which you want to help people, so education or health delivery and so on, these are jobs in which you are you you know you may benefit a lot from an individual who is very motivated for the duty of the job. And so uh, perhaps exams may not do a, a very good job in recruiting for for jobs that are that needs the the social motivation component to be very important. But sticking to the paper, I don't think we can make any statements about the variety of jobs that exist in, in the public sector and how exams can, can be better or worse for this, uh, for different jobs. We can answer uh, with respect to a job that looks much more like a tax collector, uh, as I said, and how exams, whether exams do a good job in recruiting uh, for, for these positions. So the other thing that you mentioned in the paper, in addition to the uh, technical requirements uh, of the job, which you have just uh, discussed, is that there are certain institutional environments that are perhaps more corrupted, in which you may want to limit the discretion of the recruiters more, right? So mm -hmm. I don't know, I know that you have work in Brazil. Maybe the comparison will be Switzerland. Maybe in Switzerland, it's okay to give discretion, you know, to... Mm -hmm to the politicians because they are not going to abuse it. The specific setting that you study uh, here is a, a fairly corrupt environment, uh, which is the US in the 19th century. As you mentioned, you are studying like uh, tax or tariff collectors. 
Can you tell us a bit more about the setting in which the study takes place, the characteristics of the U.S. Customs Service, the type of reform that took place under your study, and so on? Yes, perfect. Yes, I think returning to, to the previous point, I think yeah, that is another another spin to, to that uh, answer, right? So one would be the idea of motivation versus uh, the skills, but the other is about the setting and, and how corrupt, how dysfunctional are these organizations and, and whether they can benefit. Uh, and so certainly uh, organizations in which there is more corruption, it's where perhaps you, you want to remove discretion from the individuals who are appointing uh, the personnel to, to those organizations. So going to the, to the setting. So what is the setting we're talking about? So at the end, we are uh, looking at collection districts around the passage of uh, the civil service reform that happens in 1883. What these collection districts were doing at the time were basically implementing a, a import duties, right? So they, they were collecting tariffs and, and making sure they were imposing the tariff schedule uh, that was defined at the top level. There were collection districts all over the U.S., uh, and these were organizations uh, responsible for collecting about 50% of all the revenue that came to, to the federal government at that time. And what they were doing was, in terms of like the day-to-day -day activity, was basically receiving vessels and then making sure that all the goods were uh, associated with, uh, with the, the correct tariff charging based on that and making assessments in terms of the quality of the products and, and understanding, uh, you know, among the variety of products, which product fell in which category and so on. Uh, and, and then imposing a tariff for getting the goods inside uh, the U.S. Now, at that time, there was a, a lot of discussion on how corrupt these collection districts were how not only corrupt, but also there was very little care in, in how they were handling the goods and services that, that they were supposed to, to be uh, charging. Basically, they, it, it, it was oftentimes that employees that were working on these units were also responsible for political campaigns and so on. And so the jobs that these individuals were doing were uh, split among, uh, you know, perhaps taking care of, of doing the job in, in the collection districts and in the tariffs and so on, but also making sure that maybe they collected fines that they could be used for political uh, activities, as well as, you know, taking part of their time and, and, and helping directly political campaigns rather than working in, in those collection districts. And so there was a lot of discussion on how dysfunctional they were due to the personnel uh, that, that had a, a clear political goal in, in, in their activity. And this is the uh, situation prior to the reform that you study. What is the reform that you study? Yes, this, so this is correct. That's the situation prior to the reform. And so what the reform did was basically, as I said, so there are several of these collection districts all around the U.S. The reform imposed for some of these districts, so uh, large districts that had more than 50 employees, they were mandated to hire for some of the positions using a standardized exam. So basically the civil service exam. 
you know, in the past, the, the only political appointments uh, were uh, were defining who what the identity of individuals working in this collection district. And then after the reform, for some of the positions, specifically the mid-tier uh, of, of these hierarchies, uh, they had to recruit uh, based on access. So this is the Pendleton Act. Obviously, it's in the title of the paper. You mentioned that the Pendleton Act was introduced in a somewhat like unexpected fashion. You said just now that it is big districts that they are forced to start uh, recruiting certain positions through exams. How big did these districts have to be? Yeah, so these would be districts that had more than 50 employees working at the time of the passage of the reform. So the reform happened in 1883, and it was triggered by an event, as you, you, you highlighted in the right now, based on the death of the president. And so this kind of gave the political momentum to pass the reform. And so it was a, a bit unexpected, the timing of the passage. And so whoever was working in this collection districts, the number, if it was more than 50 employees in these collection districts, then they were part of the Penental Act. And the ones that had less than 50 employees were not, were kept under regular rules and, and political appointments deciding who will be working on these districts. So this is a technical job. The purpose of this bureaucratic job is to collect duties or uh, tax revenue. There are a number of districts around the U.S. Some of these districts are forced to start hiring their civil servants through exams. Obviously, these are going to be for the most important positions. I presume that whether we hire a low-level clerk in one way or another is not going to make a big difference, but, but hiring civil servants at the, at the you know, positions that are the closest to the leadership, presumably that's where we would expect the strongest effects on, on the performance of the organization. You said that these are districts with more than 50 employees. There are 11 such districts that were affected by the reform. How many districts are there in total? So the number of districts in total is 110 uh, districts. Out of those, I think 11 uh, are the ones that are part of this classified system, which is the, the collection districts that are actually part of uh, the dependent on act and, and uh, are subject to exams for recruiting of their employees. So a big advantage of this type of uh, research design is that you have a performance measure at the level of the small organization, the district, uh, which is something that in the public sector, often what these bureaucrats do is very difficult to measure on everything. Here, that's a great advantage. The downside, of course, is that you're using information from the 19th century. What data do you use and how did you gather that, that data? Yeah, so we we kind of put together a few, uh, you know, we have a, a data effort in terms of digitalizing a variety of data sources. So basically, the registers of the United States is a document that presents kind of a snapshot of the bureaucracy of the federal government, of the entire bureaucracy of the federal government every two years. And so basically, these are PDFs that we digitalize to be able to use as a data set. In these documents, we can observe the entire uh, personnel structure, both kind of like the, the occupation, like what are they, uh, the position that the individual occupies, the wage of these individuals, 
and you know the group that is working together, who is working in which uh, collection districts, right? Besides this data, we also put together in order to, to have a measure of performance of these collection districts, we digitalize the expenditure and revenues, which you know comprises of a tariff as well as fines and, and other sorts of revenues of these collection districts, which were also PDF that we digitalize in order to use as a measure of outcome. If you have uh, millions of districts, I would expect that you are able to do regression discontinuity around the cutoff of the 50 employees. Uh, obviously, you have only 100 plus districts and 11 treated. I presume that your empirical strategy is going to be a difference in difference at the same. You're right. So we initiated the basically the research thinking that we, we would do a regression discontinuity design shortly after we realized that we didn't have enough sample size. And so basically we switched to a difference in difference where we are basically comparing these collection districts where uh, had less than 50 employees by 83, and, and therefore they, they had uh, the exam mandated for some of the positions. And uh, we observe collection districts that didn't pass through these mandated exams. And then we compare how the, the outcomes behave relative to the, this control districts in which there was no mandated exam. Uh, and we compare uh, whether uh, there was an improvement or a, a, a lowering of the performance after the passage of the reform, uh, after 83. So there are two types of main results here. First, results on whether the reform affected the type of employees being hired. Uh, obviously, that's, you know, like a, a necessary condition, maybe not sufficient in order to change the actual performance of the organization. So the second type of result is on whether the reform affected the final outcomes, which is the revenues and cost of the different offices in the different districts, specifically for the outcomes in terms of the type of employees being hired. What do you find? Yeah, so looking at the employees being hired, which is, I think, the, the direct effect and the immediate uh, outcome one would look for when they are assessing civil service exams, what we find is that there are improvements in the qualifications of, of individuals. And precisely what we see is that these collection districts that had the, the exam mandated, they end up hiring uh, individuals that were more likely to be professionals. Uh, professionals are jobs, are, are occupations that are like teachers, uh, lawyers, and, and, and so on that are basically closer to the job of a clerk. So they were more likely to come from jobs, you know, prior to joining the bureaucracy, from having had a job that were under this professional categorization and less likely to be unskilled or to be unemployed at, uh, prior to, to joining the bureaucracy. And so we, we observed this improvement in the qualifications uh, of these individuals. We also, interestingly, find an effect on turnover. So we, we find that these collection districts also experience a reduction in the turnover, uh, which is basically the likelihood that uh, an individual leaves uh, these collection districts after, uh, after two years, right? So we see a substantial decrease in, in the rate of turnover uh, at these collection districts. 
So these are, I think, these are the direct outcomes that that one could uh, could say. And we also end up investigating uh, additional, uh, you know, transformations in, in this uh, in these organizations. But I'm happy to talk later or or now about that. Yeah. So this is like a panel data set of employees and years. Uh, you put district fixed effects and time fixed effects, and then as in any DID design, the main independent variable of interest is the interaction between being a district that is over the 50 employees threshold, and then the post-1882 passage of the Pendleton Act dummy, correct? And there you find that improvement in the professional qualifications of the new employees that are hired and decreasing turnover. Could you mention why is it that we might have expected a decrease in turnover? Decrease in turnover, yes. I think that's, that's why I mentioned that was surprising to some extent. The idea that we had is once you limit the discretion, you know, the politicians have to appoint their own people, maybe they don't care so much about firing others to nominate their own people, right? Because uh, the turnover is only interest if I can control who I nominate. Now, if I cannot nominate, maybe I don't bother to fire people as well, because I cannot control who is coming next. The explanation that we think it, it makes sense is that we are limiting the, their discretion. Therefore, that is, it's not so interesting to turn over uh, people in, in the same way. And in, in fact, what we find is that this reduction in turnover happens precisely when there is political turnover at the, at the presidential level. The second type of result that you have are on the... Uh, measures of performance of these organizations, these districts, the effectiveness of the custom service is measured in whether it can collect the customs, right? So the, the revenues, you look at the cost as well. What do you find there? Yeah, so what we find uh, in this looking at the outcomes, right? So uh, as you know, the first part of the paper is, is really saying that the reform was partially successful, you know, accomplish the job of improving the qualifications, reducing turnover and, you know, should we expect improvement in, in the performance, I think, which is our next step uh, that we go. And here uh, we look at revenue. So we, we look at the revenues collected, which includes the tariffs uh, that are following the, the tariff structure, how much they are collecting, as well as fines imposed, which there are a lot of much more discretion uh, at the cost collection district level. And we look at uh, expenditures as well, uh, which, of course, some of these expenditures, there was not a lot of freedom to decide, but they could have reallocate the type of spending that they have in those collection districts. The total spending was somewhat fixed by Congress, but they could uh, allocate differently these spending. And, and so we investigate the allocation of spending and as well as the total revenue. And we actually don't find a substantial uh, difference relative to uh, the period prior to the reform, right? So we find that the, the behavior of, this, of these outcomes actually track pretty much what's going on in collection districts that didn't pass uh, through the reform. And so I think that's uh, that's the, the main message. We, of course, we are a bit limited in, in terms of sample size, but we, you know, we can and we know that there is a magnitude that could be sub, you know, important, a medium size magnitude that we cannot really rule out. 
but it's not that the reform was super effective uh, in, in terms of these outcomes, despite the fact that there was substantial improvements in terms of the personnel that we documented in the first part. So I have a few ideas about what might uh, have a, what might be explaining this uh, this puzzle. Okay, which is that well, it seems that the employees actually got better, but the organizations did not benefit. Okay, from this uh, increased qualifications of the employees. We can discuss. You know, I hope to discuss them later. But I know that you have at least some evidence about what might be partially uh, explaining the, this puzzle. Uh, what is that? Yeah, so we basically, just to, to remind uh, everyone what was the reform doing exactly. So it was for some employees, which is the mid-tier of the hierarchy of this collection district, they were mandated exam, but there were still no merit hires within this uh, collection district, right? And so what we do next is to try to understand what happens to these no merit hires, right? So we, we find that there are distortions that happens at the hierarchy. And precisely there are, after the reform, they start recruiting many more employees that are at the bottom of the hierarchy because they were not subject to exams. So basically the, any opportunity that they have to recruit, basically they are increasing the share of individuals that are coming from the bottom of the hierarchy and therefore not subject to exams. And so we, we see a distortion that are happening at, at the hierarchy and which has basically two implications. So first, you are at the, you're recruiting more people at the bottom and not at the mid positions. Basically, you can pay less to those people. Basically, there are cuts in, in terms of the maximum wage that you can pay. And so naturally, you recruit worse people because you can pay less. And second, there are some positions that remain some key tasks that are no longer being done by an individual that is supposed to, to be, you know, checking the, the quality of the products. Uh, you know, you no longer have a position, maybe this will be done by someone else that don't have the right uh, skills for uh, implementing, uh, implementing that task. And so there is a mismatch in terms of the tasks and, and the individuals doing uh, those tasks. So, so let me let me repeat the finding here. So you have a again a, a panel data set of districts and years. The dependent variable now is the proportion of the employees in that district and that year that earn below a certain threshold, which uh, captures the fact that these are like low-level positions as opposed to mid-level positions. What you are getting at here is the fact that the reform said to the affected districts, if you hire somebody in this mid-level position, it has to be through exams. But it did not, at the same time, impose a minimum number or minimum percentage of positions at that level as opposed to a lower level. So the distortion arises here because the districts affected said, okay, well, if I have to hire the mid-level positions with exams, I'm going to hire less of those. If before I used to have like, you know, out of 10 positions, five and five, now I'm going to have four positions only for the mid-level that I am compared to hire through exams. And instead I will have six that I'm hiring at the, at the lower level. And this is the distortion that, that uh, you are finding. One thing that I want to emphasize here is that uh, the way that I read it 
is that this is like a partial distortion because if we compare this result with the earlier result, which shows that the qualifications of the average employee being hired improved, it is still the fact that the average person in the affected district is better qualified. It's just that it may have been even better qualified if there hadn't been the distortion away from mid-level positions and into the lower level positions. Is that correct? That's correct. But the, uh, the average is higher because of the, the ones that are subject to exam. Yes. But yes. the ones that are subject to exams are improved by, by more than enough to compensate uh, by the fact that now they represent a lower proportion of the overall employees. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. That's correct. So obviously this is a distortion. This is bad, right? Like you want to have a, you know, you don't want these distortions to take place. One thing that, I mean, this is what you obviously emphasize uh, as part of the message of the paper, uh, the fact that organizations have uh, endogenous responses to constraints that they are maybe faced from the outside. Something else that we know about organizations is that they are often uh, subject to complementarities. Uh, that is, in order to improve performance, sometimes you have to change a, a range of things as opposed to a single thing. Is it possible that this specific reform tackled corruption just along one dimension, which is the recruitment of personnel, but there were you know, other opportunities for corruption or other inefficiencies in the organization that had to change in, in conjunction with this one in order to see the improvement in performance? Yes, I think that's a possibility. And I think one, um, to some extent, is another mechanism that we emphasize is the fact that key position, which was the collector, was basically out of the of the exam, right? So they could still be uh, in the, in precisely, they were directly appointed by politicians and they were uh, passed through Congress to, the, their name had to be approved by Congress. Uh, and so, and basically, the, which is like the highest level position in those organizations, right, in, in this collection district. If these individuals who are controlling a lot of what's going on uh, in, inside these organizations still have an interest in, in corruption, maybe they will, you know, facilitate this distortion of the hierarchy, or even regardless of whether they, they do this, they could continue, uh, you know, doing things on the side and making sure that fines are collected and, and, and making sure that uh, the business as usual didn't change much with this new blood that are coming uh, that are more merit based. So they could, in a way, segregate the merit employees and, and continue having no merit uh, employees running the show. Right. So. Uh, and what we find is that uh, although, you know, in none of the collection districts that we study, this position were subject to exam, we can still show that, you know, they are key. They are very important for the outcomes of interest. So what we see is that these individuals, the identity of these individuals really matter for the, the outcomes that we're studying. And so the fact that they were out of the reform probably represented a missed opportunity to improve uh, these organizations exactly because they can control other uh, decisions that are done at, at these organizations. The second idea that I have is in terms of whether it is appropriate to expect that an improvement in the skills of the personnel of these uh, collection districts 
will translate into more revenue being collected. You, you have like a page in which you describe what the job entails. And, you know, broadly speaking, you mentioned, well, here is this new shipment that arrives to the port. And this is a good that we don't really know very well. Maybe we need to uh, measure it. We need to weigh it. We need to understand the nature and everything in order to apply the appropriate tariff, right? So obviously you want to have highly skilled individuals doing this job because it is a difficult job. And this is because you want the, the right tariff being applied. But it is not immediately clear to me why having a highly skilled individual would imply that you collect more tariffs. It, will, it should imply that you collect the right tariffs, but making mistakes should be a feature that increases the variance or increases the noise as opposed to increases the level of the of the tariff being collected. Mm -hmm. That's uh, that's an interesting point. We, we thought about that. But uh, the issue is that if I have to pay a tariff, right, and there is a mistake being done against me that I have to pay more tariff than I think I should, I will not agree with that, right, as, a, as a, someone who is trying to import goods. So I think this is right in the sense that, well, it could be that if I am completely careless about what I, my job, the error should cancel out. But on the other end, there is an individual who is paying that and doesn't want to pay more than it should. And so will complain and, and lead to, to, at the end, an improvement in terms of total revenue. So that, I think that's, that's the logic we think about. So what you have in mind is there is a, an old paper by Candice Prendergast in which the complaint of the individual member of society affected by the bureaucrat is endogenous to whether the mistake is in their favor or against them, right? So that's, that's the way, that's the way, it's, it's endogenous complaint. So you're thinking of a setting in which there is a potential complaint and there is some type of like judicial body or, you know, semi-judicial body that can rule in favor of the complainant. This wouldn't be a situation in which you arrive with your passport or your visa, the uh, immigration officer has the last word about whether you enter the country or not, right? There has mm -hmm. to be like some additional appeal process to that. I think the appeal process at the very end, uh, but I think even the interaction at that po at the port itself may correct uh, mistakes, right? So uh, the, uh, the third idea that I had was just like a, a really basic idea in terms of like looking at the data. So you have uh, this figure in which you plot like the evolution of revenue for the affected uh, districts and the non-affected districts. Uh, obviously for the affected districts, the, the level is much higher because they are much bigger, but there is no discontinuity for either of them around the Im implementation of the act. Mm -hmm. But one thing from that figure that I find it is surprising is how small the variation from year to year is. And that made me think, obviously, we're talking here about data from the 19th century, so we don't really know very much at all where the data comes from. Is it, is it possible that somehow these variables that you collected that capture the revenue are somewhat like imputed uh, rather than reflecting, you know, the, the, the real revenue that was generated by these offices? Because presumably... You know, the, the information collection at the time might not have been very good. And maybe there was some bureaucrat that was just, you know, taking the variable, the value from the previous year and just multiplying it by 3% or something, you know, and, and this is yeah. a reason that you, 
you don't detect an effect. Great. I think I want to answer two things, if possible, if I'm not running out of time. But I think, you know, the first reaction is that um, the, what we are showing is averages, right? So it's not that there is no variation. These are basically averages that, that are being documented. The second, if, if you look at fines, there is a lot of variation in fines. So if it was inputted, why it would be inputted just on, on the tariffs and not on the fines? So that's, I think, uh, our understanding is that is not an imputed measure. And the fines kind of gives additional support to that. The second element that I wanted, the second part of the response, ah, yes, is that we, we also see some relationship between uh, what's going on in terms of personnel and these outcomes, right? So it is picking up something which we cannot actually say much, not link the changes that are happening in, in the personnel and the outcome. But we can see, for example, that the death of the collector actually is consequential for, for the variation in, of these measures. We can see that collection districts, which over time expand the, the share of individuals with which has a higher qualification, also are the ones that expand in terms of revenue. So there is connections between what's going on in the, in the collection districts in terms of personnel and the outcome. And so which is what matters at the end of the day, even if uh, the variation uh, is, uh, is somewhat limited from, from visually. Right? So this is an unusual paper, both on the left-hand side and on the right-hand side variables. <laughs> Okay, typically, you know, you want to be innovative, at least on one dimension, you are here innovative in two. First of all, work on the qualifications of public sector employees. You know, it's hard to combine that we don't really have like great data sets on their qualifications, but also like reforms of the type that, that you study. Secondly, as I mentioned earlier, performance of public sector organizations is again really, really difficult. I was just uh, moving uh, away from the paper and, you know, looking a little bit uh, towards progress in the literature. What other type of questions in terms of the performance of uh, civil servants you think that might be feasible to study uh, in, the, in the future with a type of data that might be available at more or less effort? Yes. So I think, I think this leads to like, what are the questions that I start asking after I, I worked on, on this paper? So I think, you know, we show that there is this somewhat uh, parsimonious reform that, you know, it's just affecting, just changing exams. Uh, and, and, and we see all these changes happening in, in the organization, right? Uh, and, and including improvement in turnover. And so this asks me, this kind of leads me to ask the extent that tenure on the job uh, is really necessary for many of the positions, given that you already have this improvement in, ten, in, in turnover just by limiting uh, selection. Also, the idea of the how much discretion you actually want to, to leave, right? So in our paper, I, I didn't emphasize much in the podcast, but like, the, in our setting, there is still some residual discretion for uh, the appointment, right? So the top three candidates uh, that perform uh, the, in terms of performance in these exams, then politicians can still influence among these top three who are appointed. How far should we go uh, here? What is the discretion that we want to, to leave in, in terms of residual? given the trade-off. So can we say something about the optimal level that, that we want to keep? 
other uh, topics, I, I think, a, a bit uh, beyond uh, the personnel, but more about the, the reform itself. So we, we show the limits of, of contracts to some extent, like, oh, okay, you, you will limit this margin in terms of what they can do uh, in this selection of employees and, and you tie their hands there, but they, they try to work around you, right? And what is the extent that uh, when you're passing a reform, how much you can, you have to make sure the parts are happy in order to, for this tying of the hand to, to not being undone. Uh, and so how can, how can we say something about the negotiations that happens for this, when these reforms take place in order to, to have a successful reform uh, that is not only partially successful, like, like the one we, we study. And another thing that is more at the broad level, uh, and uh, here I think is the last one I, I want to put there, it's how this, you know, the fact that in, in the public sector, the decisions are very rule-based, uh, right? So it's uh, we are studying one example in which we are tying the hands and we are imposing a rule for the selection of individuals. And in, in many other uh, you know, choices that bureaucrats do, they are often subject to these rules. And what is the, the extent that this paralyzes officials? The fact that you are, you know, putting a, a bunch of rules and how does this interact with the fact that um, you have, a, and on the other side, implementing those rules, a bunch of civil servants that are not subject to political objectives and, and may not be very eager to take risks and so on. So I think the interaction of, of a very rule-based system with individuals that are appointed based on a rule and there is not much of a political motive, I think it can paralyze governments in a way that I think it's very interesting to study how, how what is the consequence for that of that. Thank you, Diana, for coming to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Please visit our website, thevisiblehand.uk, for links to the other papers that we discussed Introductory music and logo by Aitana Blanesiso, episode produced by Anderson Tan. <laughs>